A little bit of review. This is our Advent wreath that we've been lighting every week leading up till Christmas. And raise your hands if you think you know the answer. What was the very first candle we lit? Yeah, Nathan. Hope. hope. Good job. All right. So this is the candle of hope. Now, who can tell me what hope means when we celebrate it at Christmas? Go ahead, Charlie. What do you think? Okay, very good. Did you guys all get that? <laughs> good job. Yeah, hope is like when we talk about faith, we're, oftentimes we're talking about have believing something that happened in the past, but hope is a faith in the future. It's a confident expectation that God is going to do what he said he would do. And God, has God ever broken a promise? No. No. Does he, has he made a lot of promises? He absolutely has. And so when we say we have hope, we are saying we have faith. It's a future believing faith, a confident expectation. What was the second candle? Ooh. Yeah. Nope. Peace. <laughs> he, got, he read the first letter and thought he had it. Peace. So guys, when we talk about peace at Christmas, we're talking about peace between human beings and who? Adeline? God, always a safe answer here. God, 100% that's true. Yeah, I think very often we think about peace between each other or peace between nations, but when we celebrate peace at Christmas, we're talking about the fact that Jesus came because we had a God problem. God is perfectly righteous and we're sinners, which means we can never be with him. And we have to be, yeah, he's a God who is going to punish sin. But he came to make peace between us and God by becoming one of us. Isn't that amazing? What's the third candle? Yeah? Joy. Joy. These kids are good readers. Okay. Joy. The thing I want you to know about joy, guys, we find joy in lots of things in life, don't we? And every week we've been talking about this, that the joy that was born at Christmas is indestructible. It's unstoppable. And in fact, it's coming in in all its fullness, and it's forever. Uh, the author of Hebrews writes about it as better and abiding, meaning it's more excellent and longer lasting than any other joy, so long lasting that it's eternal. What does eternal mean? Yeah, forever, without end. That's right. All right, and then the last one. Yep, love. And last week, we talked about love. Love, Jesus modeled love for us. And probably the biggest difference between the love that we celebrate at Christmas and the love that we see so often in the world is that Jesus gave love not because we deserved it, but because he, was a, he is a God of love. And so we're called to love it, those in our life in the way that Jesus loved us, loving them not because they deserve it necessarily, but because we are filled with the Holy Spirit and God's love is pouring out from our lives to those around us. Now, this morning, guys, we come to the last and final candle. It's the Christ candle. I want to read for you a verse, but first I want to tell you a story. When I was a kid, the tradition in the church that I belong to, which has a very funny name. Are you ready for the name of the church I belong to? 
It was the East Hubbard and Battle Abbey. Battle Abbey, I know. It was built on the site of a Revolutionary War battlefield. And it was a one-room building with the squeakiest floorboards you've ever heard. And here's the other thing. It had no bathroom. Just an outhouse. And it was an evil-smelling outhouse. (laughs) And I avoided using it as much as I could. Also because it was in Vermont, which is also a wintry place, though not as wintry as here. Compared to here, it's like the banana belt. But it was cold enough back then, I didn't want to go out there and use it. But here's the thing. In the winter in that church, our tradition was they had a Christmas Eve service. And so my mom and dad would pile us in our van, and we'd drive through the darkness. And the East Hubbard and Battle Abbey was up in the hills. And so we would drive up through this valley... And as we drove, the woods would get closer and closer and closer until we were like driving through a tunnel of trees. And it would get darker and darker, and the woods would get closer and closer. And then we would come out of the tunnel, and there was East Hubbard and Battle Abbey, and it was lit up like a birthday cake. There were candles in all the windows, and light was spilling out into the snow. And I thought about that at Candles and Carols last week, because I have always loved the sight and the symbolism of the church all lit up at night. And I want to read you this verse. This is Jesus speaking, and he said this, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. When he says I've come into the world, he's talking about what holiday? Christmas, Christmas, of course. It's a celebration of his coming into the world. And he came into the world as light so that whoever believes in him may not remain in darkness. So we'll go ahead and light the... There it is. All right, guys, you can go back to your seats. Well, our service is going to be a little bit different this morning. What we're going to do is I'm going to... I have three small, I guess we'll call them sermonettes. And I'm, I'll, I want to tell you a little bit about the meaning of Christmas, Jesus is coming into the world. And then after each thought, we're going to respond with a song. We're going to sing a song. The first one I want us to know in Hide and Seek, if you've been at Hide and Seek Club, you've already had this lesson. We've already talked about this. But it's one of my favorite things about the Christmas story, and that is to focus on the name of Jesus, the, the name itself. Uh, Matthew's gospel account begins with a long list of names, and it's Jesus' family tree, traced back through the great King David all the way to that pioneer of the faith, Abraham. But Matthew does something really unusual in this list of names, and it's unusual, it was basically not done. He includes the names of four women in that genealogy. He didn't list all the names of the women that he could have, but he only highlighted these four, and it's very pointed, it's very on purpose. The first is Tamar, and if you're curious, you can find her story in Genesis 38. The second is Rahab, her story is in Joshua 2. Uh, The third is Ruth, and she has a whole book of the Bible, the book of Ruth. And then verse 6 contains the name of a woman, and Matthew puts it, she who was the wife of Uriah, uh, phrasing it in as provocative a way as possible. That, of course, is Bathsheba. We find her story in 2 Samuel 11 through 12. Now, I don't have time this morning to get into the details of these four stories, 
But I wanted you to know this. Jesus' family tree was a Christmas tree. And one of its branches, we'll call it the Tamar branch. It looks really bad. It's dead. It's dry with brown needles on it. And when we look closely, though, there is the soft green of new life in the tip of that branch. Another branch, we'll call it the Bathsheba branch. Well, it's twisted and broken. But from its brokenness comes that unmistakably beautiful fragrance, the heavenly aroma of grace, redemption. One of the branches, we'll call it Rahab, looks like it was attached to the trunk with wire and was not even originally part of that tree. But amazingly, there it is, seemingly alive and flourishing. And another branch, we'll call it Ruth, well, it starts out growing straight down. And it looks sparse and scraggly, but then it shoots up, and it's thick and beautiful and full of life. The trunk of this Christmas tree, this family tree of Jesus, is crooked and twisted like the tree grew under some very hard circumstances. And when we look at Jesus' family tree, we see these withered, twisted branches And we might wonder what men and women like these share in common with Jesus, the perfect one. How can they be in the same list with him? But Matthew did not include these four women because of what they share in common with Jesus, but rather what they share in common with you. Every one of them is like us in many ways. They were sinful. They had a past. They had nothing to merit their inclusion with the Savior, and they were powerless to change any of it. But Jesus came to redeem all that was broken and make it whole, all that was twisted and make it straight, all that had gone horribly wrong and redeem it and make it right in his person, in his coming. So the first chapter of Matthew begins with this long list of tragic names, and it ends with one happy and hopeful name that shines above all the rest like a star on top of a tree. And Jesus said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, and that's why he came. But here's something else I want you to see this Christmas. For me, it's the coolest thing about Jesus' name. In the Bible, naming, the act of naming, implies dominion or ownership. For example, when uh, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, came to Babylon, one of the first things the king of Babylon did was give them a new name, thereby saying very clearly, you belong to me now. You're my subject. When God called Abram and Sarai into a special relationship with him, he changed their names to Abraham and Sarah. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Simon was changed to Peter. In the, in the very beginning, Adam expressed dominion over the earth through what? He was the one who named all the animals thereby expressing the unique place that humanity has in holding dominion over creation. And in fact, if you look carefully in the Bible, who named Eve? It was also Adam. Adam named her Eve, thereby expressing in a very special way that they belonged to one another. 
Uh, this is, by the way, what makes it feel so good when a friend group gives you a nickname. You, you belong. You fit in. It's one of their way of saying, you're ours. You belong in our group. And this is why it feels so bad when people who hate you give you a hateful nickname. They're expressing to some degree that they can do that. That feels terrible. So naming equals dominion and ownership. So it's very significant then when we come to Luke chapter 2 that we read these words in verse 21. And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The Bible wants you to know that not only was he named Jesus, but the name was given to Jesus before ever he was conceived in the womb. Do you know what that means? Jesus named himself. Jesus. The pre-incarnate Jesus, before he ever, before all those oceans of divinity were collected into the small receptacle of this earthbound human being, Mary, He said to the angel, tell them to name me Jesus. (laughs) And that's significant for a couple reasons. One is that he is God. No one can claim to have dominion or ownership over God. No one can hang a name on God but God himself. So Jesus named himself. But guys, it makes my heart burn with a special love for Jesus that he named himself God saves. He could have named himself anything, but essentially he named himself, I go to the cross for you. The cross was the plan from the very beginning. And before ever he came into the world, he said, name me, God saves. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus is quoted as saying, for even the son of man came, that's Christmas, Not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And at the very beginning, he said, name me Jesus. I was uh, doing some math, and uh, this is the 11th Christmas season that I've been a preacher And I do four Christmas services a year, so that means I've done about 44 Christmas sermons. You kind of run out of things to say, and there are pastors who've been doing it a lot longer than me. However, here's the thing about Christmas. I never get tired of talking about this incredible story, this great rescue mission that God began at this time of the year, because this is really the birth of of so many wonderful things. And one of the things that Jesus said that I think speaks so well to one of the great mysteries surrounding the Christmas story, you might remember the story, we find it in John 18. It's not part of the Christmas narrative at all. It's actually towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry when he's about to be crucified and he's talking to Pontius Pilate. And shortly before being crucified, he says this to Pontius Pilate. He said, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. 
Now, at first, the way Jesus phrases that might just sound like he's trying to get a certain word count in. (laughs) He says, for this reason I was born, for this reason I came into the world. Why would he say it those two different ways to Pontius Pilate? Well, because he was born and he did come into the world. Those are two very separate ideas. When I was born, that was my beginning. But it was not Jesus' beginning, you see. He was born and he came. None of us can really say that because we weren't anywhere prior to our birth. When Jesus says he was born, he was speaking to his humanity. Jesus is fully man. And when he says that he is saying that, unlike all of us, he pre-existed his conception in the womb of his mother, amazingly, Jesus is fully man and fully God at the same time without becoming less of either. He's not part man and part God, like Achilles, and he's not disguised as the other while being the, the one. No, he is fully both all at once. He is born and he came. One of the great difficult things to wrap our human finite minds around is the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. And guys, I would invite you uh, to just rest in the mystery of that. How many of you want to worship a God that you can contain in a little box (laughs) and say, you totally grasp everything about him. How great a God that you can contain all of him in your mind. No, as Christians, we worship a God who is so much higher and bigger than us that we as his followers have to become very comfortable with mystery. And there's a lot of mystery surrounding the Christmas story. And perhaps the most mysterious of all is when Mary's God came to be conceived within Mary. Ponder with me the mystery of that. God is so big, so deep, so high, and so wide, there is absolutely no limit or end to him. There's nothing he can't do. There's nothing he doesn't know. There's no place where he is not. At the moment when the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and the power of the Most High overshadowed her, she would conceive in her womb the omnipresent God who had been everywhere. All at once, all of him, from the bottom of the ocean to the tops of the Himalayas, all the way out into the far reaches of the galaxy and beyond all of him, everywhere at at once, and then in a moment, he laid aside and willingly limited himself to the small confines of a developing fetus within the womb of Mary. He set aside that divine attribute. God is all-knowing. But in this mysterious moment, the all-knowing God laid aside his divine attributes and willed that he should take on the the simple, limited intellect of a baby. The all-powerful God, 
so powerful that he spoke the world into being out of nothing. Raising mountains, carving out valleys, separating the waters from the land, holding back and dividing the earth from the heavens by sheer force of his will, that God made a deliberate choice to be born as a baby, feeble and without ability. The God who is rich beyond measure willed himself to be born into the care of two poor teenagers, so poor that they would place the baby Jesus in a feeding trough for a crib. And most amazingly, more amazing even than the omnipresent, all-knowing, all-powerful God, willingly laying aside the independent use of all those divine attributes, is the fact that the perfectly righteous God, the holy, 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 who knew no sin and who was perfectly and completely without any wrongdoing of any sort, would go to the cross and become sin in our place. He came at Christmas to do all this for us. He lowered himself beyond all comprehension that we could be lifted up beyond our wildest imaginings. I think um, this is the thought I wanted to leave us with this morning as we um, come to the end of our Christmas Eve service. And just to prepare our hearts for Christmas tomorrow, this uh, annual event where we celebrate the coming into the world, the birth of our, our hope, the birth of our peace, the birth of our joy, the birth of love. Jesus, uh, in, in the Bible, makes a lot of statements where he explains why he came. And other biblical writers do the same. It's actually, if once you start to see it, it is everywhere. There are dozens of these verses that say, for this reason, Jesus came. And one of the more interesting ones for me to think about, because it kind of encompasses the whole story, the story that we're living in. Kids, are you aware that you're living inside a story today? And it's a true story. And the main character is Jesus. In 1 John 3, 8, we read this verse. And it says this, The reason the Son of God appeared, that's Christmas, was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, that doesn't sound very Christmassy, but let, <laughs> let me come back to it. Let me explain why this is, I think, one of the greatest Christmas verses in the Bible. Guys, the reason why Jesus is coming is so precious, is so wonderful and worthy of celebrating, is because we are living in the midst of incredible brokenness. Guys, we are living in the midst of the carnage that came from the fall. When mankind chose, made a horrific choice, Adam and Eve thought it would be better to be like God's than to continue trusting in God. And when they tried to become like God, they fell into the reality that we're living in. And, our, and our, the world we live in is full of ominous possibilities and dark realities. So many terrible, terrible things 
happen. And all of it, guys, was born from one thing, pride. Pride first in Satan and then in Adam and now baked into the cake of humanity, all of us stained with it. Pride, as the Bible would have us understand it, is a grasping desire for the place of God. And when Jesus said, that, or when the Bible says about Jesus, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, it is saying that Jesus came to destroy all that pride has wrought in this fallen world. I want to read to you a passage from Isaiah 14 about the works of the devil. Speaking about Satan, it says this, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn, all names for Satan. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will, ri- I will raise my throne above the stars of God will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. But you who are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. There's something so precious I want us to see here. The heart of pride in Satan said, I will ascend. I will ascend, I will seize the place on high. I will make myself like the most high, it said. But what do we see at Christmas? Guys, we see the exact opposite. God who was on, who is the most high, said, I will descend and I will become like you, a creature. Pride is what gave birth to all of this awfulness. Broken bodies, broken dreams, broken relationships, the brokenness of addiction, the brokenness of sexual sin and exploitation and violence, the brokenness of a world that is hostile to us, full of cancer and poisonous animals and natural disasters. Guys, it is everywhere. We live in the wreckage, the reality of the works of the devil. It is all around us. It is a toxic stew in which we live. And Jesus came. He appeared to destroy, destroy the reality of that brokenness. And what is the fix? What is the remedy for what pride brought into the world? It is the incredible humility of Jesus that we see in the Christmas story. It is the exact polar opposite of what Satan did when he said, I, a creature, will seize the place of the Creator. But at Christmas, we see the Creator God saying, I will become a creature. Pride is what made all of this go horribly wrong. And the fix is humility. 
When I was a kid, I used to really puzzle at that part of the Christmas story where Mary and Joseph got to Bethlehem and there is no room for them. (laughs) And I puzzled over it because I knew some Bible stories. Like when the Israelites were wandering in the desert and they had no food at all, God just miracled up manna. I mean, out of nothing, it just fell from the sky and provided for his people. When they were thirsty and had no water, I knew the story of how Moses struck the rock and water spilled out. When the widow didn't have oil in her jar, God miraculously filled it. I know that when the Israelites were stuck between the Red Sea And Pharaoh and his armies, God provided a way of escape. God is Jehovah Jireh. He's the provider God. And so Mary and Joseph get to Bethlehem carrying God himself, and there's no room for them? Where is the God of manna? Where is the God of water from the rock? If God had wanted, he could have willed up a palace out of nothing. Why? Well, the answer, the sweet answer, the blessed answer for us to think about and celebrate this Christmas is the manger was God's plan. That is the perfect place to lay Jesus in all humility. Guys, the manger, the feeding trough that was used as Jesus' crib is a direct rebuke to the pride of Satan. It is an absolute, how dare you? (laughs) This is what's right and good. And it's a rebuke to the pride in my own heart. Guys, how much of our Christmas wishes look like a grasping desire more than the giving of ourselves that we see in Jesus? Maybe not, I, I think as I've gotten older, I have more and more embraced the reality of what Jesus said that it's more blessed to give than to receive. I, I am way more excited about what people are going to think of the gift I get them than anything I might get. But I can remember as a kid, I just couldn't wait to rip into my press. <laughs> and it's a hard thing to shake in the human spirit. But I do want us to see this. All the way Christmas played out, God Almighty becoming a feeble baby, God, rich beyond measure, born into the care of two very poor human beings and laid in a feeding trough. God, who is almighty, omnipresent, all-knowing, a little baby who can't do anything for himself. It says in Philippians that he considered not equality with God a thing to be grasped, And what that means is he he considered it not a thing to be laid hold of. He laid it aside. He became like one of us to undo the works of the devil through this incredible act of humility. Satan was a creature who wanted to seize the place of the creator. Jesus, the creator, put on flesh, became one of us. Satan was cast down. Jesus came down of his own volition. Satan attempted to grasp the place of God to which he was not entitled. Jesus, being in very nature God, emptied himself and considered not equality with God something to be grasped. 
Satan came to rob, steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And here's where I'll leave it this morning. I'm aware that this Christmas, some folks are probably listening to me who have not yet put their trust in Jesus for salvation. And I'm so glad for whatever reason, whether you're online or even here with us in person here in the hall this morning, uh, that you are open to hearing the, the greatest, deepest meaning behind Christmas. The reason why this is so important for us to see is this. And I pray that God would just absolutely destroy any false ideas people have about the way of salvation. Because God has spoken with force and clarity about human, how human beings can know salvation. If we believe, as many human beings do, that on the day of judgment when God returns, that you will be saved based on your resume of good works... If you believe this morning that you are saved because you are good relative to other human beings, I want you to know this, that idea is born of a grasping desire for the place of God. And it is not what's on offer at Christmas time. Because essentially what you are saying is, it would be better if I could save myself than to trust in a savior. That was the sin Adam and Eve committed in the garden when they said it would be better if we could be like a God than to continue trusting in God. And so if you think this morning that your salvation is dependent on yourself, on how good you are, on how well you have obeyed God's commands over the course of your life, then you are thinking that you can save yourself and you don't need a savior. But when Jesus came into the world, he came to save you. It says there in Luke, he came to seek and to save the lost, not to assist, not to assist you in your efforts to save yourself. That is the very stuff of pride. The good news of Christmas is this. Jesus came into the world. God Almighty came and became like one of us. God the offender took on flesh. And he wore that human body over the span of 33 years of living on earth without sinning even once. And he wore that body all the way to the cross. And there he allowed human beings to nail him to the cross and God's wrath was poured out on him there so that you, if you believe in him, all your sins died with Jesus on that cross. And all of his righteousness is credited to your account. This is the amazing truth of Christmas. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. And Romans 6.23 says... That although the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, that gift can be yours this morning. If you would put your trust in what Jesus has done for you and trust in the finished work of what Jesus did on the cross, this Christmas you can receive the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
I'm going to close out our service this morning, as I often do, by just praying a very simple prayer. And if you're a non-believer this morning, but you have come to believe in that central truth of the Bible, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and you want to receive the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, you can just simply agree with these words as I pray them, and they can be yours. You can become a follower of Jesus this very morning. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, there may be one here who is listening this morning who does not yet know you as, Jesus, as Savior. And God, I invite them to pray this prayer along with me in their heart and thereby receive the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Father, I know that I'm a sinner. God, in your law, you have laid out perfectly what is right and what is wrong. And God, I have broken many of your commands. There are things that you have commanded that I have not done, thereby sinning. And there are things that you have commanded that I not do, and I have done them, and I have sinned in doing that. And God, I know that you're a righteous God, who does not overlook sin, and that the wages of sin, as it says in Romans 6.23, is death. God, a wage, that's something I've earned and deserved. But God, I've come to see that you don't want to give me what I've earned. You want to give me a gift, a gift I don't deserve, but is a reflection of how great a God you are, that you're a God of grace, who doesn't deal with sinners according to their sin, but God, you love, you extend love and grace and mercy to us. And so, Father, I receive that gift this morning. Father, I put my trust in Jesus alone for salvation. I know I can't save myself. And Father, I need a Savior. And so, God, I thank you so much for what Jesus did for me on the cross. Now, Father, I pray that as we go out from here that we would shine as Christmas lights in this season, that the light of the world, Jesus, would shine in each one of us, that in our words and in our mode of living, in our homes, the truth of who Jesus is, the beauty of his righteousness, God, would shine in our lives. God, we're wildly imperfect, but we're so grateful, Lord, that our salvation rests, the hope of our salvation rests on the perfection of what Jesus did for us. And God, he's unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so we can rest. God, thank you for this gift. In Jesus' name, amen.